This conversation on Kitsch features Andrew Atwood, Laurel Broughton, Thomas Klasnick, Andrew Kovacs, Jimenez Lai, Michael Loverich, Anna Niemark, and Ellie Ward. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. I mean, I have no problem with Kitsch. We have no problem with Kitsch. And because it's not necessarily a problem for us, it's not like a project for us as well. And it's not something that we necessarily think like we have to fight for or kill. We do create kitschy things at times. We appreciate kitsch. I think for us, the important thing is maybe not to make, like purposefully try. We I guess we aren't purposely trying to work with kitsch is kind of the point. By engaging with popular taste, you are going to produce kitsch at times. But I think that's kind of one of the things that's a joyful thing for us to do is because we do become excited by it because it was something that was we were told not to do. That's like a very common trend right now as well. I mean, I think basically everyone's kind of doing what they were told not to do. Most of the young people out there today are very optimistic about architecture in the world and everything, even though there's a ton of bad shit going on. Optimism is another thing that underlies a lot of young firms. I think I often think of kitsch as a historic term in the same way that I actually think of the avant-garde as a historic term. And so in that, I don't think about kitsch. I don't think about that, the kind of contrast of of those kind of two ideas. And I think that in this time, there isn't a difference. Kitsch or modern architecture or postmodern architecture, whatever you want to call it, for me, they're all at a kind of level playing field. Or, or, or maybe another way to think of it is like everything already exists at a kind of level playing field. And I'm just going through that level playing field, selecting things that I appreciate or that I see as having relationship to one another for some for some for for some reason and i think those reasons can be either kind of formal that they have some kind of recognizable quality a kind of particular color so i so i think that like kitsch is just another thing there in a way kitsch basically meant like deeply unfashionable you know fashionable once now no longer fashionable mm-hmm. therefore interesting and and edgy i don't know that doesn't really exist now because everything's fashionable we delve into history constantly everything that was old-fashioned is, is cool and is um, it the sort of mantelpiece ornament or it's the pink flamingo in your you know in your back garden it's the it's mm. the, the you know the bar in a corner of your living room that looks like a coconut kitsch is also you know this thing that's mass produced for another kind of audience right so i think i can learn from it I look at it and I think I can find things that I like within it that maybe, you know, everything that I sort of like at some level is detached from its original intention. I mean, maybe kitsch is is also problematic because it already kind of contains its own set of, like, values and what it kind of means. So I, I think that for me it's more about that everything kind of exists on this or, or at least I try to think of everything existing on this equal playing field. Of course it doesn't because I'm then going and, and making preferences or judgments or selections of what I appreciate or what I see as having a relationship to something. So, but, but I think it starts at that, or I, I w- would like to think that there's a kind of level playing field and that 
things that are called kitsch are equally able to be included. All of the participants in this piece share this belief in a level playing field in architecture. This conversation teases out a certain tension between the highbrow avant-garde aspirations of minimalism and its current status as the standard of popular and affordable taste around the world. Here's Ellie Ward, followed by Andrew Atwood and Anna Niemark. Kitsch is a word, I don't think you hear that often anymore, actually, I would say. Kitsch was a thing 10, 20 years ago. It was like a kind of thing that only a few people really knew and talked about, and you had to go to, you had to find these weird secondhand shops that like, would sell these little weird things from 20, you know, years previously, you would buy little bits of 60s kitsch, and it was kind of a rare, it was a rare thing. And then, and then you know, then it became popular, and now you can go to any shop on your high street and buy a bit of contemporary manufactured kitsch, you know, you're not actually buying real kitsch. Maybe kitsch was especially about low, you know, low culture, so-called low culture or popular culture. And I get, again, I think that's probably why it's something that I don't think we really talk about or, or celebrate or have as much fun with these days, because I think that's, it's become kind of uncomfortable to make fun of people's tastes in, in, in a way that we probably did, you know, 20 years ago. That was Ellie Ward. Now here's Andrew Atwood and Anna Niemark. I mean, there are certain there are elements of it. Like, I, I don't. I would describe our work as as kitsch. Although there are certain parts of it that I, I have, I'm envious of, which is we used to have like four people that looked at our stuff, and now maybe we have eight. But there is an interest in engaging somehow in a larger audience, which I think kitsch does effectively. I think the opposition between difficult and easy is it I think doesn't have to happen in that way. I, I think you can I think you can have challenging work that seeks to address broader audiences that is a little bit more curious or confusing or confounding, but in a, in a more expansive way. And I, I think some of the things that Anna and I have been doing with our most recent work, which is what we've been building a series of models and making sort of movies of those models. The models, I mean they're built with dollhouse parts. That they have little doorknobs and little hinges on them, and there are certain parts of them that probably that I think appeal to a certain audience in a way that a kitsch thing might appeal to. That's not their intent. I would I would say I, I wouldn't call them kitsch, but they certainly resonate with people in, in a way that kitsch would. And then also the videos that we make with them are also meant to sort of reference again things that have much larger or broader audiences. I still think they're quite difficult in the way in which they deal with. And with different ways in which people might understand them, and the sort of layers that I think are embedded in those projects, and so I like I'm uncomfortable with sort of like avant-garde, difficult, kitsch, easy, avant-garde, narrow, opaque, small audience, kitsch, sort of like easy, broader audience. Like to me, those distinctions aren't necessarily like they're not one to one, and so I'm sympathetic to certain things that I think kitsch provides, and I think certainly some of our work. Whether we whether we're comfortable with it or not sits in there with the kind of dollhouse references, but I don't know if they need to be always in opposition to each other. And I certainly want more people to look at our stuff, but I want more people to look at our stuff and be and take interest in it, not necessarily be immediate. I think these kind of immediately consumable to them, and so I just don't think they always need to be set up in opposition. Those four terms. The project that probably best describes what Andrew's talking about is the Duchamp door for the mm. shotgun house that we that we worked on this past year. 
where we looked at a vernacular house type with its vernacular construction details, which might for some constitute the idea of working with kitsch parts. But then we, we kind of married that against a simple idea of this kind of ready-made by Duchamp of the door opening one room while closing the other and reworking uh, the details of the door jam, the kind of the, the way the structure might work within that door system constituted for us a project, right, an architectural project. So it, it operated exactly between the two oppo opposing worlds of kitchen avant-garde. But I mean, that model operates between them. I mean, there's a kind yeah. of delight, frankly, yeah. in working that model. It has magnets in it. There's a way in which it opens and closes between two jams that is simply, it's sort of delightful. It really is. But then there's a, then there is a real difficulty with the way in which the details work. That architect, that like, so I think a kid can sort of take pleasure in that mm -hmm. model. And then an architect can look at it and ask very serious questions about how exactly the door jam works and how you deal with the molding over top of it. And, and, and you actually cannot figure it out by looking at the model. It kind of extends itself. And so, and it has, but it's, it also has sort of cute, I mean, it, like people describe those things as cute, those models, because they have little doorknobs on them and other things. And so for me, that that's like one example of the different ways in which these things don't necessarily need to be like sort of bracketed out. I mean, I love the little hinges. It's delightful in a way, but they maintain a certain difficulty and like towards like when they're pointed at a slightly different audience. Here's Jimenez and then Thomas who start a conversation about ethics and popular taste. Kitsch is not a word that I use very often. It doesn't really uh, yeah, have in, in my vocabulary. Now, do I do that? I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't think I do it, but maybe I'm like, not self-aware enough to know that I do it. Like, you have to be, have some knowledge of Seinfeld to, to find more core interesting. Yeah. I, I guess uh, there's an uh, ethical barometer placed around the word kitsch. Like, I, I think kitsch in itself implies off standard mm -hmm. right like not not central standard kitsch also maybe implies like poor performance or i mean i, I don't know there's there are all these like bad taste yeah almost. bad yeah. taste meaning there's good taste and therefore meaning there's a yeah, ethical barometer of good um, mm -hmm. and so i like if we were to maybe view the word kitsch from that angle i do find it interesting that there is a visual standard and there is a visual collective standard of good uh, that we're maybe not really uh, facing a full on. And mm -hmm. so when somebody, like, when someone's able to inspire us to say that's kitschy or that's bad, it means that then that's great, we get to examine what's good. I think that popular taste is, is Ikea now. So, it, you know, and they had their chuck out your chintz mm. commercials. So I'm not going to say, you know, people still do have the garden gnomes and you know, nodding dogs and fake flame bulb candles here and there, but I think maybe popular taste is now a bit more Swedish. Ikea came up several times around the topic of kitsch. Here are Andrew Atwood and Laurel Brockton on the absorption by popular culture of the formerly avant-garde aesthetic of white cube minimalism. Things like Ikea and sort of lifestyle, like the sort of dwell lifestyle, those things don't have any kind of resonance like with an avant-garde audience more they're actually not what's difficult and so like our we have a certain kind of blankness that we deal with things i think i think a lot like I think there's lots of different ways we could describe that i don't it, it is minimal i don't think it sort of is minimalist it's like a kind of venn diagram of the things that i and i 
both are interested in. And as it turns out, if it was just me, it would be a lot more. If it was just her, it would be a lot more. And then there is like a very small space that we overlap and those things tend to be pretty reduced. Um, but I don't think it has, I mean, that's a kind of aside. I mean, I like to me, those oppositions just at a certain point, they, they fail to have traction. They're not productive. I mean, I think because for, for, for instance, I think like, like projects that present themselves as sort of really avant-garde typically aren't and aren't interesting. And then on the op and the other side of that, people that present their work as kitsch as a kind of avant-garde project, also not interesting. It is certainly right now. You could equally talk about Ryan Tree Curtain's work as art or a trip to the IKEA show floor in very similar, like as not art, but in very similar terms. We're in a strange place where one could equally talk about the IKEA show floor or a sort of work of art and their cultural resonance and with a kind of criticality that doesn't distinguish in the way that the the kind of original conversation about kitsch distinguished. We asked Andrew and Anna if they think the debate around populism, as most famously argued by Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, has become irrelevant. I don't, I don't know if it has. I think if you'd asked me two years ago, I would say no, and I would sort of like put up a kind of resistance to, and I would just say our work is difficult. And but I like for me, I think like the way in which you like like the, 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 that audiences are sort of singular, and you must choose one. And the way in which you address a kind of popular or public is very different than the way in you, which you might address a kind of highbrow, more curated, narrow audience. I just don't think it. That's, I don't know. I, like, I think it exists less and less. And frankly, I'm interested in just expanding those things. And I think you can. And I think you can address different audiences in different ways with with a single with one with one work. Those models and those videos, okay. they try to do it, mm-hmm. which is a kind of question of audience. And I think Kish Avant Garde gets at that, especially when you're building dollhouses. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the first time we tried that was, and we didn't. We don't do these things consciously, but now that. You asked the question. The Pinterest uh, houses were dealing with exactly the same set of concerns. Like, how do you bring something like ideas about abstraction to bear on an environment that is purely about the production of kitsch within the Pinterest board kind of aesthetic, right? So, like, literally invading one with the other and, and being comfortable in that kind of juxtaposition, being completely comfortable with it. I think that that's probably coming from the fact that we both came to Los Angeles after graduating from uh, the GST in 2007. And so LA offers exactly that environment where you kind of have to engage, well, you're constantly engaging both the, the world of art and architecture, let's say the highbrow world, within a context where kitsch is of equal value. TV is more important here than, than film, let's say, I don't know maybe everywhere at this point. The work of Ed Rocher or just looking at the banal streetscapes of LA is as important as looking at something like the Disney Concert Hall. You know, these things are in constant juxtaposition and they coexist and we have to embrace both in a way in order to survive here um, and maybe in order to, to just be relevant. Andrew Kovacs also weighed in on the highbrow, lowbrow distinction. Here he is responding to our question of whether he ever talks about taste. 
I think that we're always having a conversation about taste, but it's implicit or it's implied. It's never explicit because, you know, taste <laughs> in, 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 a, in a weird way is kind of sort of sets its own kind of cultural hierarchy, which maybe is also why I sort of like things that I know others won't like. Because <laughs> I know that it might sort of irritate them, but uh, or that like you know kind of be like they would say something, oh that's blasphemous, you know. <laughs> so I think that taste is always we're always having a conversation about taste, but it's never totally explicit. It's always kind of under the surface of other things. I'm interested in re refining my own taste, not defining my own taste or defining taste. I'm interested in like and I think. Taste for me is also a kind of sensibility. I think that there are things that are sort of low, quote unquote, everyday, mass produced, that are beautiful, or that have a certain proportion or certain form to them. Like I, you know, you can go buy a, like a plastic piggy bank that has a nice shape. I don't care much for it as a piggy bank. I care a little bit more for it for its shape and its kind of architectural qualities. But I'm sure it makes a great piggy bank. But I think that's, again, like everything is always kind of removed, right? Like the objects, they know, the, the objects that I acquire, like no longer serve their function, even though they might be funny. Like a colossal die or a, is, you know, that you, you, you can roll it, but it doesn't work as well as a normal sized die. But it has a nice shape. It's a nice big cube with rounded edges. And, and, and then there's a kind of, humor to it that it's also like an oversized die. We asked Andrew if the humor doesn't belong to a world of refined taste. Isn't it the same space that Venturi occupied with the idea of the almost all right? For me also the almost all right is a weird pragmatic thing. Like it's if I want to use a Doric column in a model, it's cheaper, easier, faster, quicker to buy a Doric column that's not a Doric column that's normally used for like a, a wedding cake than to 3D print it. So it's almost clo it's close enough. Now, if I had, you know, millions of dollars, then I would maybe, you know, 3D print as many Doric columns as I needed. So, there, there, I mean, there's a number of factors, I guess. Sure, there's the, the humor of it, but it's a little bit of, you know, the joke becomes less and less funny the more you tell it. Returning to Ellie and Thomas, we asked... Is taste a matter of class? It's, it's hard for me to, to project, I think, these class distinctions for aesthetic preference in the way which you know, people did previously. And today, maybe you know, the most, if we were talking, thinking about who would have the kitschest interiors, it's probably the wealthiest. You know, it's the branded hotels and the, the, like a, a mulberry tower or something where everything is. The, the kind of foreign investors buying the you know, off-plan flats which are mm. so chintzy and they're the, the opposite so they're kind of minimal mm. exterior uh, see the, the number of elaborate tile floors so even the tiling behind the, the sink the splashback we've got over there mm. you know that 10 years ago we would have viewed that as kind of a strangely kitchen left over from an earlier time but today I look at that and think oh you know actually there's someone has chosen those uh, elaborately patterned tiles 
to distinguish that space from what is probably an IKEA kitchen setup. It's still a joy in kind of finding original things. You know, when you find a house that's untouched and it has got the original tiles, whether they're you know, from the 60s or from the 30s or from, you know, from even, even earlier. So it's, it's a joy. But none of that's kitsch. Yeah. Maybe that maybe there's too much Ikea. Everyone got washed out and swimming in the empty blandness of melamine carcassed kitchen. They clung on to the patterned floor tile or something. You've been listening to A Conversation on Kitsch. Interviews were conducted by Joseph Bedford, Kurt Gambetta, Mark Achari, Joanna Grant, and Kevin Pazik between 2014 and 2015. Produced for the third issue of Attention, the audio journal for architecture, in 2016 by Griffin Ofish.